Please open your Bibles again to the book of John. We read earlier the account of um, the raising of Lazarus. And before we start our study of this text, I want to make another note about tonight. Um, I'm going to be watching to see who is there who is an unbeliever and strange. And the reason I'm going to do this is that there are a few areas where it is uh, easier to talk to people about eternity than to talk to them about death. And the whole nation was talking about death when Terry Schiavo was in the process of being uh, starved to death. And this is a wonderful opportunity for us to cause people to think about their souls and what happens after death. And so uh, I do hope that you will be a good steward of the work that's gone into this by inviting people who you know who don't know Jesus to come and to think about their death and the death of their loved ones and to think about uh, God and our Savior Jesus Christ. We will make a very uh, concerted effort tonight as I am going to do this morning to hold out the gospel. And uh, I do exhort you to be faithful to what we are asking you to do of inviting others to come tonight. Now let us uh, turn our attention to John chapter 11, verses 17 through 27 particularly. This is the account of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And this account is the exclamation mark that is given by the Apostle John to the three years of ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. It comes at the end of John's history of those three years, and it perfectly sums up both the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. It shows us that Jesus Christ is both man and God. And here in this account, we see him demonstrating his two natures. His humanity is demonstrated by his love for Lazarus and the tears he shed as he approached Lazarus' grave. The shortest verse in the Bible, John 11.35, tells us simply that Jesus wept. His divinity is demonstrated by his power over death when he called out, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus did come out. None of the other Gospels record this particular Miracle. We don't know why, but we do know that this miracle forms a key part of the tremendous outpouring of excitement and anticipation that came just a short time later as Jesus entered Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, this day that we celebrate today as Palm Sunday. When the people lined up along the roads to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem just a short time after this account, the context for that was them remembering that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, that there was nothing that this man, Jesus, could not do. And so when they were shouting Hosanna in the highest and laying their cloaks and palm branches down before him as he rode on a donkey into the royal city, this is the context for their expectation at that time. Now, Lazarus' hometown was Bethany, and that's where this happens. And Bethany, we'll read in our text, was just two miles east of Jerusalem. And so this happened really as a part of the Jerusalem, the urban experience, if you will. 
Now, on to the historical account. Jesus was not in Bethany when Lazarus got sick. Lazarus' sisters sent for him, but he delayed coming. We read in verse 5, what? That Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And immediately, in verses 5 and 6 reading this, we ask ourselves the question, why did Jesus not come right away? Why didn't Jesus come immediately? We read in verse 5 that he loved Mary and Martha and their brother, Lazarus. And Lazarus was in need, so why didn't he drop everything and come? (coughs) We read the answer in verse 4. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So Jesus delayed coming for the better demonstration of the glory of God and himself. Did you notice that? For the glory of God, verse 4, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. In John 11, verse 11, we read, After that he said to them, and this would be his disciples gathered with him, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Now, the disciples regularly made the mistake of taking words literally from Jesus that they were not supposed to take literally. There's a lot of posturing in the conservative Bible-believing church about who does and doesn't take the word of God literally. And certainly, when it comes to this miracle... Anyone who doesn't take the Word of God literally and comes up with some figurative way of describing what actually happened to Lazarus as he came out of the grave stinking, all right, is completely contrary to the Word of God. The Word of God makes it clear that Lazarus was stinking dead and that when he came out, he was living. And so we don't go through uh, you know, all kinds of calisthenics trying to come up with a way of of getting out of the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead. That's central to this story. But on the other hand, every text of Scripture is not a a matter of me saying, well, my, my interpretation of that text is the literal interpretation. And then looking at everybody else and saying, you're in sin because you don't take Scripture literally. Um, as I said, Jesus, when he spoke a number of times was speaking in a figurative manner. The disciples took it in a literal manner, and he reproved them, he rebuked them. He said, you guys aren't seeing the spiritual reality of what I'm saying, and this is such a case. He said, Lazarus has fallen asleep. They thought, yeah, that's what happens after there's a terrible battle for the life of somebody in sickness. And so if Lazarus has fallen asleep, Finally, there's been resolution to his sickness, and he's now sleeping the peaceful sleep of recovery after the battle of this disease. 
So it's a good sign. The critical moment is past. Lazarus is going to get better. Good. He's asleep, right? And Jesus was not meaning that at all. He meant that Lazarus was dead. So then we read that Jesus spoke plainly, telling them, no, Lazarus is dead. And then also telling him, them that he was pleased that Lazarus was dead. Now, can you imagine this on Trinity Broadcasting Network? Can you imagine uh, in the very, very... We must have a short in this. Uh, can you imagine in the very, very... Um, fancy living rooms with the nicely upholstered furniture, uh, hearing the negative confession that it's good that he's dead. Um, I think the, the point that many of the preachers on the Trinity Broadcasting Network would make is that it's too bad that those who knew Lazarus did not have the faith to believe that he would be healed. Do you understand and, and so now, sadly, he's dead, and the moment has passed when he could be healed, right? Well, Jesus says it is good that he is dead. You can imagine the confusion of the disciples hearing Jesus speaking in this way. What do you mean you're glad he's dead? Have you no heart? We love Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha, and we thought you did too. Do you delight in the loss of your friend and the suffering of his sisters? What kind of a man are you? It would be very difficult to understand Lazarus uh, being dead, being a good thing. It would be hard to understand how Jesus could say. Remember, they're thinking uh, Lazarus is asleep and he's recovering. Jesus says, no, he's dead. It's good that he's dead. They're going, what on earth are you talking about? It's good that he's dead. But remember, they knew what kind of a man Jesus was. That he was both bold and tender and that he fearlessly rebuked the religious leaders of his day, but that he loved the humble of heart. And so they set off with him for Bethany, knowing that somehow all this would help them to believe whatever that meant. So Jesus said, let's go to Lazarus, and off they went. But what's up with Thomas? It's a pretty negative confession, isn't it? He sounds like Eeyore or Calamity Jane. And John... In, in verse 16, it says, Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go so that we may die with him. Well, look back with me at John chapter 10, if you would, please. And we see in verse 31, it says that the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, what happened? Well, it says in verse 31 that the Jews picked up stones again. That the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And so it's really quite natural what Thomas says in verse 16 of the next chapter, let us also go so that we may die with him. Well, they've just barely escaped with their lives the previous time they're in Jerusalem. And now Jesus wants to go back, and they realize that the same people who were angry before will be angry again. 
But we're dealing with personalities in this text, and we've begun to know them as Christians. We read the Gospels and we get to know. And Thomas really is sort of a Calamity Jane or an Eeyore. Um, Jesus had been comforting his disciples as his death came closer, telling them that he was leaving them soon and that he would be preparing a place for them in heaven where they could soon join him. And we read in John chapter 14, verse 5, after Jesus' comfort, after his telling them that he was going to prepare a place for them, that John Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Again, the same sort of doubting, kind of uh, maybe not surly, but certainly not positive temperament, a negative confession. But let's remember that it is this statement by Doubting Thomas that leads our Lord to give one of his clearest statements of the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. That after Thomas says this, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so similarly, we see Thomas's personality coming out after the resurrection of Jesus himself. Thomas refused to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. He was not there at one of the appearances of Jesus to the disciples. And so when Jesus' resurrection was reported to Thomas, we read in John 20 that Thomas responded. It said, the other disciples were saying to Thomas, we have seen the Lord, but Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So this is the personality of this man Thomas. Then we read, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be, what? Do not be unbelieving, but believing. John chapter 20, verse 27. The command of our Lord to Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believing. So Thomas had a problem with unbelief, didn't he? And this is why, down through history, the people of God have referred to this man as Doubting Thomas. However, Thomas did not have a problem with love. And might we say, love covers a multitude of sins. And so, despite his knack for looking on the dark side of things, we see here Thomas's love that he was willing to die with Jesus. And so he said in verse 16, let us also go so that we may die with him. And so off they went to the little town of Bethany in Judea. Now, picking up the story with verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. So by the time they arrived in Bethany, Lazarus had been dead over four days and had been in the tomb four days. The place Jesus and his disciples had been staying before this was about 30 miles away. And so it would have been at least a good day's walk. And remember that Lazarus had been dead two days before they left for Bethany. The many who gathered were from Jerusalem. If you look at verse 18, it says, Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and 
many of the Jews had come. And so it's clear that they had come from Jerusalem. Two miles is what? 20 blocks. And so it's quite close to Bethany. Then we read in verse 20, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet Him, but Mary stayed at the house. Now, we talked about the temperament of Thomas, doubting Thomas. Well, what's the temperament of Martha? The temperament of Martha we find in Luke chapter 10. If you'd turn there with me, please. In Luke 10, beginning with verse 38. There we read, as they were traveling along, he, Jesus, entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations and she came up to him, to Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. And so what's the character of Martha? Being worried and bothered about many things. Alright? But let us remember also, if you go back to verse 5 of our text, there we read, it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. We don't know much about the temperament of Lazarus, but we do know the temperaments of Mary and Martha. And Jesus loved them. Now, interestingly enough, here it's time for Martha to shine. Every part of the body has its time to shine. Jesus comes, and it is not Mary but Martha, who comes out to meet him, casting her cares upon him, knowing that he cared for her. Mary stayed at the house, but Martha went to meet him. And then in verse 21, we read that Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Hey, brothers and sisters, I want to say something to you. In the middle of my sermon, we need to be careful that we, because of the building we live in, that we not have an attitude towards worship that people come and go. And we need to realize that this is a place where our time is set apart for the hearing of the Word of God. All right? And this means that we honor this place even though it's a gymnasium. And I am very distracted this morning by everything going on in the sanctuary. And I think if I am, probably some of you are too. So when it comes to our gathering for worship, I keep thinking as I preach, these thoughts go through your brain. Those of you who speak publicly, you know this. And I keep thinking in my brain, if this were a sanctuary, we wouldn't have people getting up and leaving and walking around the way we do here. And so I don't want that to go on. 
I have often thought of saying this, and I will say it this morning. There is a bathroom that you may use before the service begins. Uh, you should do that. Uh, if, if you think enough about trips that when you get in a car, you all say to your children, all right, now go to the bathroom because you don't want to have to stop half an hour out of town, right? You should know enough that when you come to worship, whatever it is that causes you to have to get up and leave, you take care of before you come into worship so that this time there are not distractions, all right? Now, I don't say that because I know that people who have left this morning shouldn't have left. But there's no good time to say it without us thinking of particular individuals. And that's what keeps me from saying it most of the time. But let's remember, this is a sanctuary. And we need to take care of whatever it is that we have need of before we come in here. All right? End of pastoral aside. Now, we have looked at the temperament and the personality of Thomas We've looked at Martha and we've looked at Mary. And I said it is now Martha's time to shine. Jesus comes and notice who isn't the one that goes out to meet Jesus. What does it actually say? It says, if you look at the text, verse 20, it says, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but what? It says, but Mary stayed at the house. Mary stayed at the house. So, we're not left wondering whether this is intentional on Mary's part. Uh, the Bible clearly says that one of them left and the other came. And you can say that Martha's busy about many things and that she has this temperament that's always churning, churning, churning. Well, Mary may have the more pensive and melancholy temperament, Mary did not leave the home and take her troubles to Jesus at that time. Mary stayed at the house. And so Martha said to Jesus, verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now, what do we have here? Do we have faith? Yeah, we do have faith. Is it a perfect faith? I, I don't think so. Um, we have an incipient faith, a, a budding faith, you know, like uh, the clematis in front of our, by, by our mailbox with all the little buds that are coming. It's not the full flower, it's the bud. And this is what we have with Martha here. It's a combination of thoughts and feelings of overwhelming grief combined with anger and yet combined with that reproachful anger still faith. Lord, if you had been here, what is that? That's clearly Martha saying to Jesus, you should have been here. There's just no question about it. Martha is not hesitant in saying to Jesus that she knows better, is she? Now, I want you to enter into um, Martha's mind at this point. She thinks she knew better, doesn't she? Um, ask yourself this. Do you ever think you know better than God? Had you been here, she says what might have been. Even now, she says what still might be. But is it true that had Jesus been there in Bethany when Lazarus was sick, that Lazarus would not have died? She clearly says this. But is it true that had Jesus been there, that Lazarus would not have died? Now let me ask you this. 
Do we think so little of God's providence that we're willing to deny the good of what has come to pass knowing that what might have been would have been better? In other words, it seems to me that the only way Martha can reproach Jesus is that she's confident that she knows better than Jesus what should have happened. Right? She has to have believed that if Jesus had followed her recommendations, her thoughts, her desires, that things would have turned out for the better. Now let's just think about that for a second. Let's say Jesus had been there and had healed Lazarus. What would not have happened? Well, one thing we can say for sure is that the Jews would not have redoubled their efforts to kill Jesus. And so Martha's right. Right? Because it tells us at the end of the story that the Jewish leaders were so furious over this resurrection that they redoubled their efforts to kill Jesus. Right? So Martha's right. If you had been here, he would not have died and it's likely that then there wouldn't have been a resurrection and consequently the religious leaders would not have felt so threatened in their position and consequently would not have redoubled their efforts to kill Jesus and Jesus might not have died. And that would be good, right? It would be very good if Jesus didn't die because after all, Jesus was a good man. And, and, and doesn't the Bible tell us to, that we should not rejoice in evil, but rather in good? And wasn't it evil that Jesus was killed? Now, why am I doing this to you? Well, I'm doing it to you because I want you to begin to think about how easily we put ourselves in the position of God and decide what He should and shouldn't do. And the second we get off the path of God's providence and sovereignty, what happens? What happens is everything goes smash. You know, just one slight divergence from the path that God has ordained. What if Martha could have gotten what she wanted? You know, she wanted him to show up. Lazarus then would not have died. And the whole thing could have gone in a different direction. In fact, I, I would suggest to you that if you had been able to open up Martha's mind at that moment as she rebuked Jesus, and you could have said to her, you know, you're right, Martha. I can see into the future, and I'll tell you what's about to happen. Because of your brother dying, there's going to be a whole hullabaloo when he's raised from the dead. And when Jesus comes to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, all the people that see him raised from the dead are going to be pouring onto the street, making a huge commotion, and they're going to force the hands of the religious leaders. And those religious leaders are going to determine to kill Jesus. You're right, Martha. The repercussions of this are going to be awful. Jesus, in a few weeks, is going to be crucified. What do you think? Do you think Martha would feel confirmed in her judgment that Jesus had failed her? Well, I had no idea that was going to happen, but that's all the more reason why, Jesus, you should have been here. 
Now, I'm not trying to get you to go to every text of Scripture and think what might have been. But I'm trying to get you to see that what Martha did is very natural, and you and I do it all the time. We just have no question what God should and shouldn't do. What God should and shouldn't give us. What God should and shouldn't allow happen to our children and to our husbands and to our wives and to our parents and to our children. Do you understand this? Now, I've had to deal with this in a very personal way this week. And that is, as I went through this story, I was taken back, as I meditated on it, to a time when I was a little boy, four years old, and I had an older brother, Danny, who was five. And Danny got sick, and my parents had grown up in uh, your basic mainline liberal churches. Uh, My mother Methodist, my father Presbyterian. And when they came to a certain time in their lives... They had the, the beauty of Jesus Christ's sacrifice and his, his, his offer to come and dwell in them and for them to believe in him and for him to become a personal savior to them, that they could be united with the church and that for all eternity they would be saved. And so they believed. When they finally got the chance to hear the gospel proclaimed to them, instead of some sort of moral and ethical system, which is what liberals always give out, it changes the direction, but it's always moral and ethical improvement. When they heard that Jesus called them to believe in his death and resurrection, they placed their faith in him. And when they saw his honoring of the word of God, Jesus doing everything to fulfill the Old Testament. They knew they were to honor Scripture. And so when their little boy, Danny, got sick, what do you think they do? Well, they look at the book of James and it says, if anyone's sick, let him call for the elders. And they see that it says that the elders are supposed to anoint the person that's sick uh, for healing and that they're supposed to pray and that the Bible promises that that person will be healed. And so my parents, being not naive, but still fairly new in their faith, they do it. They call the elders, they anoint my brother with oil, they pray that he'll be healed, and they believe he's healed. They go down to the hospital where he was being treated, and they thank the doctors and nurses for uh, their care, but tell, tell them they won't be needing them anymore because their son has been healed. Danny has been healed of, of his leukemia, right? Well, Danny, by God's providence, went into a long remission. It lasted about a year. But then a year later, Leukemia returned with a vengeance. And a few days later, Danny was dead. Now, I was inconsolable because Danny and I played together every day, right? I'd lost my playmate. And I had heard Scripture, and I knew that Scripture said that Lazarus was raised from the dead. And so it seemed a fairly simple thing to me. After Danny was put in the grave, I began during evening devotions to pray that God would raise Danny from the dead. So every night when we had family devotions, there was one little boy there that had faith. That was me. And every night I would say, Dear Jesus, please raise Danny from the dead. Now you can get all lost in sentimentality on that one. You know, you can think, first of all, of the knife that went through my parents' hearts every time I was praying that. 
And you can think about me and think, well, why didn't God answer the prayer offered in faith of that little boy? And I have to tell you, as I've thought about this this weekend, that I think I've spent most of my life asking that question, why did God not answer my prayer? And I think I've spent most of my life faulting God for not answering that prayer. I've said it a few times when I've thought about why it is that I find prayer so difficult. But I'm looking at this, and I'm looking at Martha, and I see myself. And I think, didn't I really believe that I knew what God should do at that time? And I have to admit to you, yes, as a little boy of four, I was a very proud and stubborn little boy who was convinced that he knew what would be best for God to do. And that little boy who was proud and stubborn grew up into a man who's proud and stubborn. And I believe to this day it would have been better for God to do what I asked Him to do, which was to raise my brother from the dead. It would have been better for my parents. It would have been better for my brother Joe and for my sister Deborah. It would have been better even for my brothers David and Nathan who weren't alive at the time. Think of the faith they would have had hearing that their older brother had been raised from the dead. It would have been better for all of Philadelphia. Because you know, all would have heard of it. The doctor was C. Everett Coop. So it would have been better for the whole nation because the rest of his life he would have told the whole nation about this patient of his that had been raised from the dead. I mean, think of the glory God could have been given. And furthermore, I would have been happy because I would have had my playmate back. Now, brothers and sisters, and those of you who are not believers and therefore are not my brothers and sisters, I want you to see that this is the entire approach of our nation to sickness and to suffering and to death. We do not blush to tell God what He should and shouldn't do and when and how. Now, we come up with all these good reasons why we know what he should do. And, of course, Jesus said what? Jesus said you cannot love both God and money. You'll either hate the one and love the first, or you'll hate the first and love the second. You cannot love both God and mammon. That's what Jesus said. And so... You know, we have, no con- we have no doubt that we know what God should and shouldn't do. And, uh, and consequently, uh, you know, we come up with all these reasons why God uh, should heal people, but of course our faith is weak. And so today, what we really do is not believe that God should heal people or that He will, but instead today, we believe that we should kill people. Because really... We've lost faith in God and we only have faith in ourselves now. And we, we absolutely reject any notion that sickness and suffering and death are part of God's kindness to us and to those who don't believe. And so we take destiny in our own hands. We're like Eve, you know. Did God really say, you know, He's insecure? And so today, we think God's insecure with death, you know, and that if we show ourselves strong and decisive at that moment of suffering when we're going to be a burden, we'll just take it in hand and we'll show who's master. 
And after all, won't it be a good thing? Because think of all the health care resources that will be saved. And furthermore, think of this woman, Terry Schiavo. You know, she's in a persistent vegetative state. She said she didn't want to live. We should give her husband the benefit of the doubt if she doesn't want to live. Why should she live? And so, once again, we, we take our destiny in our hands. And all over the country, people are split good and bad. And, and most of the good people are only saying, well, we can't trust Michael to tell us what she really wanted. But, but that's not the issue. The issue is that our whole nation is basically united in saying what Terry wants is what Terry should get. Can't you see her face? Can't you see that she wants to live? It's immaterial. Both the people who say she wants to live and the people who say she wants to die are united in defying God's sovereignty over this woman's life. It's not a question of whether Terry wants to live or die. Do you understand that? God is the giver of life. God is the taker of life. And so we look at Martha. We say, you know, Martha, you're, you know, uh, you're right, woman. You go, woman. You know, if he had been there, it wouldn't have happened. Well, we can see what we have to deal with here. Uh, he failed. And, and now we'll have to clean up. And so Jesus has this woman in his face rebuking him, but he loves her. And she's still doing a whole lot better than Mary, who's sitting at home and hasn't even come in faith to Jesus. All right, now how does Jesus respond? Well, we look at the text and we see Jesus, verse 33, saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping. And he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus took upon himself the suffering of Martha, the suffering of all the loved ones gathered there, the suffering even of the grievers who weren't moved as much as Mary and Martha were, but still uh, had compassion on them as their friends and loved ones. And we see that Jesus went to the tomb. He said in verse 39, remove the stone. They said, he stinks. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings. Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. And therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe him, and the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. Now, what happens? Jesus says to Mary and to Martha and to all the people gathered there that he has the power over life and death. And he tells them, as he told his disciples, that he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. All right? He then does it. 
There are tons of witnesses. There's no question about this. But what do we read happens after he raises him from the dead? What we read is that many believed and that many refused to believe. Now, the people that refused to believe, was it because they didn't see the resurrection? No. Everybody was gathered there knowing he was in the grave. So it's not that they didn't see the resurrection. Why didn't they believe? Let me ask you another question. Why did the religious leaders set about to kill him when this was over? What does it say? What does the text say? It says in verse 48, If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And brothers and sisters, and those of you who are not yet believers, let me say this to you. If you do not believe in Jesus, if you do not trust him, if you think that you know better how to handle life and death and your money, the reason that you will not believe in Jesus is that you have made an idol out of life. And that whatever it is, whether it's your cushy relationship with the Romans, you get along well with them, they've allowed you to have a position of subordinate power, you're able to be a leader, and you know that if everyone goes after Jesus, that the Romans will remove you as leader. They'll say, you didn't do a good job of managing this crisis. Do you understand? So it may be that your idols are political. It may be that you want to have a reputation as a judge or a legislator or a mayor. It may be that your idols are personal, that you can't follow Jesus because it would be a divisive force in your family and your idols are your children. Okay? In other words, everyone who didn't believe had an idol that caused them, despite having seen the resurrection of this man from the grave, they would not believe. Okay? Now, you're sitting here and you're saying, well, like Thomas, you know, I didn't see it. And I'm not going to believe unless I see it. And I say to you, the Bible testifies with absolute truth that this man was raised from the dead. And as everyone gathered there that day had the decision whether or not to believe, you seated this morning have the decision whether or not to believe. This is not something that you can just pass off as an old story. This is a literal account, a historical account, of what occurred that day when the man came out of the grave, covered with the grave clothes. He'd been in there four days, and it was not a cold environment where you're left intact for 2,000 years when somebody sees your foot sticking up out of the ice on the North Pole. All right? This man was seriously rotting. He had no power, no self-control over his destination. He wasn't self-determined. He was dead. And Jesus raised him from the dead. And immediately there was a division. Those who believed and those who didn't believe. And so I ask the pertinent question, which is, do you believe that Lazarus was raised from the dead? Do you believe he was raised from the dead? Well, everybody there believed he was raised from the dead. And so then I ask the imperative question, which is, do you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is? 
Do you believe that the reputation of God the Father and of Jesus Christ were bound together in such a way that when Jesus raised him from the dead, it proved that he was the coming one, that he was the Messiah, and it proves to us today that Jesus is God and that he will come again and that he will be given judgment over our souls when we die or when we are gathered into the judgment day? These stories are not given to us to have warm feelings when our older brother dies at the age of 40 or 4. Or when our baby dies in the womb. These stories are given to us for a response. Now, what is our response supposed to be? Well, our response is supposed to say, looking at Christ, we are supposed to say, Lord, I believe. And every single time you see the power of God as Scripture is read, you hear it proclaimed as it's preached, every single time your choice is between idolatry and faith. There's absolutely no end to what you have been revealed by the Holy Spirit this morning, let alone your whole life living in a land where the Word of God is spread across the land. And this room is filled with people who have seen the resurrection of Lazarus, let alone the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and have believed. I believe. Do you believe? Do you believe in this man, Jesus Christ, who was God in flesh? I'm not asking you if your friends believe. So often the reason we don't believe is because we have idols, and one of your idols may be your friends. I remember when Lucas was at George Washington University. And as I listened to Lucas, and we know Lucas, and we know that Lucas has a heart that's too big for his own good. All right? And I remember hearing Lucas begin to enter into doubt and unbelief because of all of the people around him who would not believe in Jesus Christ. And yet he loved them. And it began to be a scandal to Lucas that God would not save these people who were Muslim or who simply rejected Jesus Christ. And that was an idol that was tempting Lucas, that he would judge God because God had not saved his friends. Jesus does not ask us to take the world upon ourselves. Jesus and his Father are capable of handling this world with perfect justice and love. But Jesus comes to us and he says, do you believe? Don't talk about those in Africa who have never heard. Don't talk about the Muslims and the Buddhists. Don't talk about the well-meaning liberals. This word has been proclaimed to you. And this morning, you have the decision placed before you as to whether or not you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And it is he who is asking you this. It's not me. Let's pray.